Well, it's my privilege just to welcome up and pray for my wife, Renelle, uh, who's going to preach today for us on Mother's Day. And uh, she's not only a stunning and amazing wife, uh, she is a remarkable mom. Uh, one of the wisest moms I've ever known, uh, tirelessly sacrificial, um, incredibly attentive, uh, amazing in her ability to just be steady with our kids, but knowing how to love each of them in their individual way. Uh, she knows the language of love so well. And so she's highly qualified to be able to speak uh, to you as a mom, but she's not just speaking to you as a mom of kids. Um, she's speaking as a mother in this uh, church. I've watched her this week just um, pour herself out over the word uh, and in prayer, and I'm so excited just to hear from her. So I'm going to pray for her. Father, thank you so much for every mom today. We want to celebrate them, and I pray that you would sustain and strengthen them today. Uh, but Lord, all of us are your children children of the Father of Heavenly Lights. And so we want to receive this word uh, as children, knowing that you have a word for each of us uh, to grow up in the family of God, to be more like you. So bless Renelle as she teaches, and we open our hearts to your word and your servant. Amen. Well, hello, Southlands, and any extended family of Southlands who are watching. And happy Mother's Day. Um, it's a day for you to be celebrated, moms, and we celebrate you today. Um, when I was asked to do this preach for Mother's Day, I was given the option whether I wanted to continue in Romans or if I wanted to do a standalone. And I found myself actually strangely drawn back to a verse that captivated me very early on in my walk with God. And it's this verse uh, from 3 John. It says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And as a new believer, it really captivated me because I thought of so many things that could make John joyful. And it was strange to me that his greatest joy was hearing his children are walking in the truth. And so I started reading the, the verses around that, that verse in 3 John. And then I found myself actually delving into all three of his letters. They're near the end of the New Testament. And basically throughout these three epistles, John writes many little phrases to believers, and he's basically calling them little children or beloved. And I was captivated by that, not only as a mom, but as a child. And it was such an interesting exercise just to go through each of those phrases where he basically spells out the truths that he wants them to walk in. And the tone of John's letters is loving and cautionary. It's parental, maybe even maternal, and I wasn't even close to becoming a mother when I first scribbled that verse down and stuck it on my closet door as a 17-year-old. But as a mother now, on the other side of the parental coin, I resonate with so many of these warnings and truths that he talks about in these three letters. So won't you read with me just a little chunk from 3 John, verse 2 to 4. It says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Just beautiful. The first thing that grabs me when I read this is the beginning, which is what I pray for you, Southlands, even this morning. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. 
as it goes well with your soul. In view of COVID-19, I pray that for you, sincerely. And secondly, the thing that really struck me was, he says, I pray for your body as it goes well with your soul. And he says he knows that their soul is well because he's heard some news from the brothers. And the news that he's heard is that their truth is the truth. And it's such a funny thing in these days where we talk about my truth, your truth, our truth. What is the truth? I'm not sure about you, but after eight weeks of living in the COVID-19 mixed messages, I want to know the truth. What were China's numbers? Did Sweden get it right with herd immunity? Is it more effective to wear masks or socially distance ourselves? Is going to the beach good or bad? When it comes to grave matters, we understand that the truth is more important than my truth or your truth. And that's what John is going after in these three letters. And so I want to start off, I'm going to be hopping around and pulling out those little verses where he says, beloved, or little children. And we might consider it a little offensive that he's t talking to us as little children, but actually it serves us well to remember that we are children and Jesus himself encouraged us to approach the Father humbly as little children. And so the first truth that John goes after is the truth about sin. He wants us as little children to get, get this right. What is the truth about sin? And as a parent, I identify with this just because I know how it feels when my children sin. It's devastating. As a mom, there's a moment when you realize for the first time that your child will sin, and it is devastating. It's usually when, for the first time, your toddler slaps you in the face, <laughs> and you just find yourself thinking, you little brat about your own child, and it's devastating. It is really devastating. I remember so clearly, Sophia, our second child, was about just shy of two years old, and we were at a leadership conference, and I was actually on the sidewalk outside the meeting hall talking to none other than Priscilla Tari Cruz. We had just met. And Sophia was wandering around next to me, um, and next thing she started heading towards the road. And as a good mom does, I yelled out to her and I said, Sophie, do not go in the road. And this little two-year-old literally looked at me and dipped her toe into the road as she looked at me. And in that moment, <laughs> I thought, you little brat, how dare you? So when your kids sin and you realize for the first time as a mom, my kids will sin, it's devastating, but never quite as devastating as when you find out your kids have been hiding sin, have been ashamed of their sin, and have been crushed under the weight of it. And it's with this heart that John writes these words to us about sin. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 to 2, he says, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. So his first warning is, don't sin. Try your hardest not to sin. And he says, I'm writing you these things so that you don't sin. The things he's writing is basically that God is light. He mentions it in the verses before, just saying God is light. And if you have fellowship with him, you walk in the light. But if you do sin, don't deceive yourself. Go to him 
and ask for forgiveness. And that's the classic scripture where it talks about confessing our sin and that he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. His second warning is that if we do sin, we must remember that we have an advocate. Michael Eaton says it like this. How holy do you expect to be? Well, I can tell you one thing. You will never be so holy in this life that you do not need the blood of Jesus. John does not want you to sin, but he immediately makes it clear that he knows you will. The godliest of people never feel that they've arrived. You will need Jesus every day of your life. You need him as your advocate. Don't try and dispense with him. Don't try to struggle to produce a day in your life when you say, today I did not sin, I don't need the blood of Jesus today. Don't ever try to dispense with the blood of Jesus. You will need it every day of your life. The blood of Jesus is to be used. It is embarrassing day after day to need the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from sin, but don't get so holy that you feel you don't need it. The truth that John is trying to get us to understand here is what he says in chapter three. Little children, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. And so we try not to sin, but sometimes we do. And when we do, we have an advocate. The second truth is the truth about relationships. And this, as a mom, I completely understand because I hate it when my kids fight. John says in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 7, Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. And he says in chapter 4, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. The reason why moms hate it when their kids fight is partly because we don't like the fact that they're not loving each other, but also because it actually destroys the peace for the whole family. And it's an interesting thing how many times in Scripture God goes after this. And I think it's one of the most important things we can teach our kids how to deal with relationships. Personally, I found myself in a struggle with bitterness recently and had the joy of having an older father in the faith call me out on it. And he actually referred me to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 is that classic bitterness passage that we hear about. Don't let the root of bitterness grow up. Um, and he basically took me to that. Um, and the thing that's important to remember with this passage is that it's preceded by Hebrews 11, which is the list of the crowd of witnesses. There's a call to consider this crowd of witnesses, these amazing fathers in the faith who have endured much. And then it goes on in chapter 12 to talk about Jesus, considering him and what he had to endure, the hostility he endured from sinners. And then comes the part about us enduring as discipline from a good father. Um, and then comes the part that we know, which is Hebrews 12, chapter 12, uh, verse 12 to 15, which says, therefore, in light of the crowd of witnesses and Jesus and your good father who is disciplining you, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So that's where he took me. And the thing to remember in terms of relationships, the truth about relationships, 
is that they're not short-term. They're easy in the short-term. It's super easy to love someone for a couple of years. Relationships get hard when they are long-term. I uh, was really helped early on in Ellen and my dating when Ellen's dad explained to us the cycle of relationships, that long-term relationships, you start off and there's a phase of enchantment, and we know this when we talk about marriage, the honeymoon phase, but it's true of any relationship, that actually you start off and there's enchantment, and then you hit a stage where there's disenchantment, and that is the most difficult stage in a relationship where you have to endure to get through to the final phase, which is reality, where you can love the person for what they really are. And so I've loved this chapter over here, Hebrews 12, which really talks about enduring in relationships. It's a chapter about relationships. And I have considered it because it's a, cap a chapter on endurance as well. And personally, I used to swim long distance swimming when I was younger. Um, and it's really helpful if you've done any kind of endurance training, if you've run any marathons or swum any long distance swimming, to see relationships in the light of endurance race. And whenever you're in an endurance race, it's it's something you've got it. The discipline is enduring. Initially, when you first start training, it's brutal. It is exhausting. It's nauseating. But as you continue to endure with discipline, you get to the sweet rhythm, especially in swim, as you're swimming, where it just becomes a sweet, peaceful rhythm of swimming for a long time. And the same is true with relationships. So we're looking at Hebrews 12. The key is, first of all, to consider him. Get your focus right. With any endurance race, you have to focus. I remember in swimming, I would say, we used to swim across a lake, and I used to set my eyes on the finish. And at that point, where you, you always reach this point with any endurance race where you want to give up. You, you're just so fatigued. You, it's too far back, and it's too far to go, and you don't know what to do. At that point, you fix your eyes on the prize. <laughs> And so consider him, fix your eyes on Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. That's what it says. Um, and then second of all, you just keep swimming. You just keep going. And I love the way he talks over here because he's quite firm in these verses. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight. He's basically saying, snap out of it, straighten up. If any of you have done cross-country, you know that there's a point in fatigue where your form gets bad. And it's the same with any kind of endurance training, even weightlifting, CrossFit, whatever it is. If your form gets bad, you get hurt. And often your form gets bad when you're tired. And at this point, he's saying, you need to snap out of it. You can do this. Keep going. You can do it. When your relationships get difficult, when you're in disenchantment, straighten up, pull yourself together. It's going to get better. And if you don't straighten up, you're going to get more hurt. And so he tells him, make your path straight so that you don't get more hurt. This is key in relationships. So how do you do it? He says in verse 14 to 17, first of all, you pursue peace with everyone, he says. And that word pursue is the same word that they use when they are talking about pursuing an enemy. Um, and so it's not just a calm sort of retiring, we'll see, maybe it'll sort out, maybe it'll wash over. No, it's pursuing, it's tactical, it's strategic, it's intentional, and it takes a lot of effort. And so the way you make your path straight in a relationship so that you don't get more hurt is that you pursue, you go after in a tactical way, peace. And secondly, you pursue holiness. I've noticed this 
statement amongst Christians and even amongst us where we reach a point in a relationship where we are behaving in a godly Christian way and there's some invisible line that most of us have where we feel that if someone crosses that line, it's gloves off. You've heard that phrase, I'm sure. Gloves off. That was the line you shouldn't have crossed. And I want to just put to you tenderly, but seriously, that we don't get that luxury as Christians. We don't get the luxury to take the gloves off at any point. In Matthew 5, God's, um, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what more are you doing than others? He's basically saying, this is the line, the very line, where you show that you are a Christian. And so I want to encourage you, pursue holiness in your relationships, and then finally, pursue grace. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no bitterness springs up. And this is what I landed up doing after my friend confronted me. I would sit on our porch in the mornings and worship and remind myself of the grace of God that's extended to me. And that's how you can extend grace to someone who's hurt you, somebody who's disappointed you, somebody who you're disenchanted with, you can do it. And so the truth about relationships is that they're a marathon. They take a lot of endurance. The second truth, third truth, is the truth about idols. John wants us to get this. He wants us to understand about idols. And as a mom, I understand this because it's the same as when our kids make bad friends. One of the hardest things as a mom is when you see your kids starting to form friendships that you know are not going to be good for them, friendships that are going to hurt them, friendships that are going to be harmful. I remember myself as a 14-year-old having a friend that my parents did not approve of. And it was a vulnerable time, as most 14-year-olds. I have one, so I know it's a vulnerable time. And I've been one. And when I was 14, I had one unhelpful friend. And we had just moved, moved towns. I was in a new school. And I was desperate to belong. And Jackie provided that for me. But she provided in a way that was not good for me. And I found myself doing things that I would not normally do. I found myself in places I would not normally be, and I knew my parents didn't want me to be, and I found myself hiding things from my parents. Um, and the sense of belonging is a natural thing, it's a good thing, but when it becomes ultimate, that's when we get into trouble. And I'm so grateful to my father who actually forbade me from seeing Jackie. He just put an end to it, he said, no more, you cannot ever see that girl again. And I was mad because that was my most precious possession at that time because she was my belonging. But we can't, we can't make things ultimate. Only God can be ultimate. And so John says in 1 John 2, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. Little children, keep yourself from idols. The truth is, idols are bad friends. Tim Keller says it like this, An idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. If we look to some created thing to give us the meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. John wants us to know the truth about idols. And the truth is that idols are bullies. And so I want to ask you, Southlands, Little children, keep yourself from idols. 
And then lastly, he wants us to know the truth about shame. As a mom, this is when my kids withdraw, when they isolate, when they shrink back from me. 1 John 2 verse 28, he says, Little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. As a mom of teenagers, I'm sensitized to this because actually the stage of life my teenagers are in, it's not so much about attachment, it's about detachment. Healthy maturation of a teenager is that they start to become independent. And so I have to be comfortable with the fact that they are withdrawing from me in a healthy way. But teenagers hide away in their rooms for multiple of reasons, some of them good and some of them bad. Sometimes it's healthy detachment as part of their development. Sometimes it's fear when I'm on the warpath and they know that I'm going to go after them for something they've done. Sometimes it's just pure selfishness. They know that I am going to ask them to do chores if they come out of their room so they hide in there. But sometimes it's shame. And this scripture is basically saying, you're a child of God. You're my child. Don't withdraw from me because you're ashamed or you're embarrassed. I've seen this. I was chatting to a friend recently, and we were actually talking about our youngest children. Alan and I are both the youngest children. And so when we were chatting, we both identified with this. Um, and I especially identified with it that this is often the case with the youngest child in a family, where they become the butt of everyone's joke. <laughs> they just get teased a lot. Everyone makes fun of them. And I've noticed in our family that sometimes when we as a family go overboard with that, our youngest will retreat to his room and he'll withdraw and he'll isolate because he's embarrassed and he's tired and he feels not good enough and he feels like he'll never measure up because we're all older than him. We're all more accomplished than him and so it's just a losing battle for him. So he isolates himself. And it's this very thing that, that John is going after here and it's very true in the church as well. I've seen this thing in church where people will start struggling with something, maybe return to a sin that they'd once um, mastered, or maybe they're just a little tweaked, and you notice that they start to isolate, they start to withdraw. Perhaps you're comparing yourself to an older brother or older sister and feeling like you're just not good enough, and so you start to isolate. And John is basically saying, don't do that. Don't shrink back. Don't shrink back. You're, you're my child. And Spurgeon says it like this. He says, if you are to go to Christ, do not put on good doings and feelings, or you will get nothing. Go in your sins. Your ruin is your argument for mercy. Your poverty is your plea for heavenly arms, and your need is the motive for heavenly goodness. Go as you are, and let our miseries plead for you. When children feel like they're not good enough, they tend to shrink back. But actually, the fact that we're not good enough is the very reason why we draw near. In 1 John, I love this one because as a mom, I've seen this so often in these moments where I've seen my kids struggling in their stage of life. Now, we know if you're a teenager, it's an awkward stage of life. You are growing into your body, you're growing into your personality, you're growing into your character, and it's a very awkward stage of life. And in those moments, it can become a very hopeless time for a teenager. And likewise, for believers, at moments in our walk with God, we can become very, very hopeless that we will ever change. And I love this, this one, where in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we see him. I remember so clearly when Asher, our oldest son, was a, a little boy. He used to have knees that were out of proportion to his body, and we used to kind of joke about it, but also they were a sign that he was going to be a big boy, and those of you who know him know that he is big. He is a big man now. But when he was a little boy, his knees were too big for him. But Alan and I both knew in that moment, in that awkwardness of that stage of life, we knew, boy, you're going to grow into those knees. And that's what, that's what John's really saying over here. He's basically saying, come boldly and come confidently to receive mercy because you're going to grow into those knees, church. You're going to grow into those knees. There are growing pains and there's awkwardness, but you're going to grow into them. You are not what you will be. So in conclusion, if I were to write this letter, rewrite it to my kids, I've written it out here, I'm going to read it to you. This is how I would, I would phrase it. If I were to pen it and give it to them, it would say, my boys, my girl, Asha, Sophie, Levi, my children, try not to sin. But mostly, don't make it a habit. But if you do sin, don't worry. I know you aren't perfect, and that's okay, because thankfully, you have an advocate. Run to him. Make good use of the blood he shed. Don't withdraw and hide in shame or isolate because you're embarrassed. Just admit you made a mistake. You are welcome just as you are. I know what you are, and I can see what you're becoming, so this doesn't scare me as much as it scares you. You will grow into your knees. Your brothers and sisters, frows and in the church, are a gift to you, even when it doesn't feel like it. They're also trying not to sin, even the ones you think don't struggle or shouldn't struggle, like your older brothers and sisters, but sometimes they'll make mistakes or sin, and it may hurt you. Especially at these times, don't sin in reaction. Come to me. I can help you to find grace. You'll need to endure in your love for them. Remember, relationships are a marathon. And finally, be careful who idolize. Even really good people and things are not trustworthy enough to pursue with all your heart. Save worship for someone perfect. And so I pray that for you, Southlands. In the words of John, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Bless you.